X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news of democracy. My name's Jeff Smith. I live in Portland, Oregon, and I'll bet a bunch of you do too. It is Monday, December 14th, a great day to subscribe to The Local and to tell a few friends. Today, back in the day, December 14th, way back in the day, 1542, Mary, Queen of Scots, succeeded to the throne as the only surviving legitimate child of King James V. Mary Stuart was only six days old when she acceded to the throne. That's really, really young. She spent most of her childhood in France while Scotland was ruled by regents. In 1558, she married the Dauphin of France, Francis. Mary was queen consort of France from his accession in 1559 until his death in 1560. Widowed, she returned to Scotland. Four years later, she married her half-cousin. It's not the same as a full cousin. Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley, and in June 1566, they had a son, James. James became King of Scotland in 1567, King of England and Ireland from the Union of the Scottish and English Crowns in 1603 until his death in 1625. For people who are more focused just on American history, it was during James's rule that the plantation of Ulster and the English colonization of the Americas began. Today, we'll have your quick six headlines. We'll also have an interview with Christina Gish Hill, professor of anthropology at Iowa State. Dr. Gish Hill will share insights on cooperative agriculture with tribes and tribal people. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's quick six local rundown. The Kinney family has reportedly reached a deal to keep their family home in North Portland. Barricades around the Red House on Mississippi Avenue began to come down on Sunday after the family came to an agreement with city officials. The family raised $260,000 through a fundraising campaign, enough to buy the house back from the legal owner who had bought it for that amount at a foreclosure auction in 2018. Portland activists on social media called for help clearing the street of barricades. Police had agreed not to forcibly remove the family from the house during negotiations as long as the barricades were taken down by Monday. Those barricades went up last week after police failed to carry out a court order eviction of the family. Protesters blocked the eviction. Police, though, did arrest several demonstrators. Mayor Wheeler responded by authorizing police to use all lawful means to remove the family from their home. But now it does look like we can at least see the glimmers of a peaceful conclusion to this thing. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority reported six more COVID-related deaths on Sunday. The state's death toll is now 1,155. Sunday also saw 1,048 new COVID cases. Our case total is 93,853. Meanwhile, Oregon is preparing for vaccine rollout. The first 228,400 doses of the vaccine are expected to arrive in Oregon by the end of the month. This figure is a combination of the Pfizer vaccine, which has already been approved by the FDA, and the Moderna vaccine, which is expected to be approved soon. Both vaccines require two rounds of injections, meaning that those first doses will likely go to roughly 100,000 Oregonians. The first doses will go to people who work in the healthcare field. In Oregon, there are 300,000 healthcare workers eligible for the first round. Federal data suggests that the country will have enough vaccines for the entire general population by the second quarter of 2021. Governor Brown said in a presentation that the vaccine effort will still be a difficult one. Quote, it's a tall order and we can't do it without federal resources to deliver the doses and support our distribution and outreach efforts. Nonprofits are seeing an increase in donations and people need more help in the pandemic. 
pandemic has made 2020 a record-setting year for charitable donations. That said, many nonprofits are still struggling as they try to respond to a greater number of people in need. The Salvation Army predicts that its Red Kettle fundraising campaign will bring in only half as much as it did last year. That means a $60 million loss. They're already operating with 18% less funding than last year because, of course, the thrift store portion, not as much business. The good news is, though, more people are giving in greater amounts than previous. The Giving Tuesday data common says that Giving Tuesday, that's the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, people gave 25% more than last year. 16.8 million people gave $2.5 billion, $2.47 billion to be a little closer. That's more than any philanthropic organization gave last year, except for the Gates Foundation. The government is encouraging charitable giving as well with a $300 tax deduction claimable next year for donations in 2020 to tax-exempt nonprofits. Some larger philanthropic organizations have also increased their giving. The Ford Foundation's given away $5.8 million, preparing to donate another $4 million through a bond. Arts and performance nonprofits have taken the biggest hit. Experts say that as the pandemic ends, people may flock to those organizations for their roles as community centers as we hunger for human contact. Community members urged Metro to clean up Willamette Cove last week. Last Thursday, dozens of citizens spoke to the Metro Council to convince them to recommend a full cleanup of the contaminated riverfront property in North Portland. Some speakers, including Native American community leader Alvi C. Yuma, expressed disappointment that Metro would follow an Oregon Department of Environmental Quality plan. The plan would have left 23,000 cubic yards of the 27-acre property contaminated. Metro Councilor Sam Chase added an amendment to the resolution that Metro was set to vote on Thursday. The amendment made the cleanup project eligible for a chunk of the $475 million granted by a Metro Parks bond from 2019. Chase also amended the measure by requiring Metro to, quote, convene a work session within 30 days of the issuance of the DEQ record of decision for Willamette Cove to discuss additional and voluntary actions that Metro could take at the site to further improve its environmental condition. Speaking to the council, Chase added, quote, Metro is the property owner. Metro Council is responsible for ensuring our properties meet our mission and values. The amendment was unanimously approved by the council. The full cleanup cost $1.9 million more than the DEQ recommended partial cleanup. Oregon inmates who are set for early release are still in prison. 13 adults in custody in Oregon prisons have been kept in prison an extra four to ten weeks. Two inmates from the first round of medically recommended early release in September are still in prison. Eleven inmates from Mill Creek Correctional Facility have had their release dates pushed back several times since November. The DOC of Oregon, that's the Department of Corrections, said the reason for the delays is lack of proper housing upon release. Here's the quote from the spokesperson. Safe, affordable, and felon-friendly housing has been an enormous hurdle for release planning. You can let them out of prison, but where are they supposed to go? On December 2nd, Governor Brown expanded the eligibility for early release to those with six months left in their sentence. Previously in the pandemic, only people with two months left were eligible. Diana Bouvia, the wife of inmate Mark Bouvia, says her husband was told he would be released in November due to his medical vulnerability. Department of Corrections staff checked her home to see if it met safe criteria for appropriate housing, and it was told that it had passed. But despite this, Bouvia's release has been pushed back twice. Department of Correction is still blaming the late approval of the housing on that delay. They say the release dates of the remaining inmates fall around mid-December, but those are projections and not, and I'm quoting, set in stone. But to be clear, until they're released, those prisoners are set in prison. And finally, some good news. Portland PE teachers have been getting kids active in creative ways. Of all the subjects, physical education is a challenging subject to teach remotely. 
PE teachers struggle with attendance and participation, but have gotten creative with how they engage their students. Using techniques like green screens and pre-recorded videos, PE educators are seeing some students getting active in a class they otherwise wouldn't have participated much in. These teachers also stress the importance of PE beyond physical health. They also promote mental health as well as nutrition and other forms of child development. And that's that's today's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Rundown. For our next segment, we'll listen to a conversation between X-Ray's Christine Alexander and Kira Lindenberg. They'll be speaking with an associate professor of anthropology at Iowa State University, Christina Gish-Hill, about her recent article, Returning the Three Sisters, Corn, Beans, and Squash, to Native American Farms, Nourishes People, Land, and Culture. This morning, uh, Kira and I are joined by a very special guest. Happy to have her here. Christina Gish-Hill is an associate professor of anthropology at Iowa State University. She's a scholar of indigenous studies focusing on native relationships with the land. And she's the author of the recent article, Returning the Three Sisters, Corn, Beans, and Squash to Native American Farms, Nourishes People, Land, and Culture. And this article has been reposted everywhere. It is fascinating and exciting, and I'm so happy to have Christina on the show today. Good morning, Christina. Good morning. Thank you for, I'm honored to be here. Thank you for that kind welcome. Oh, you're welcome. Well, I just, I found this article last uh, week when I was um, going through Native News Online, and then I saw that it was originally posted at The Conversation and a few other places. Um, This, to me, is a fascinating topic, and so is your field of study. But let's start with the nuts and bolts. Can you explain to our listeners what are the three sisters? Sure. So many of you may have heard of that term before, and it refers to corn, beans, and squash. Um, And they're called the three sisters because a lot of Native people feel and believe that they live together and care for each other as sisters do. So the corn creates a trellis for the beans to climb on, and it also uh, brings moisture back to the entire system. And so I'm from Iowa. There's corn all around me, and uh, people have said that the more corn that's been planted over the years, the more humid it's become in our state, and I believe that. Wow. Um, yeah, so so the corn brings moisture to the system, um, and then the beans bring nitrogen back into the soil that can be t- depleted by the other plants. Uh, the squash creates a ground cover that helps prevent weeds, and it also retains moisture. And the heritage squash that Native people grew had these really thick spikes on, on them, and so it also helped prevent pests like uh, raccoons who were interested in a snack. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then many people are not aware, but often in Native communities, there's a fourth sister, which is the sunflower. And she was often planted around the border of the garden to act as a fence, which would keep out deer, but also encourage pollinators, bees, uh, insects, and birds to come and visit the garden. Wow, it, that is beautiful. It just m- makes my heart sing. And and so what I'm curious about, what was the genesis of your research project? And it was reuniting the three sisters. Yeah, so for me, it actually began with the seeds. 
I work at Iowa State University and the Ames Plant Introduction Station is right next door, which is actually a federal repository for, um, for seeds. And I discovered that squash, uh, corn, and sunflowers are, were being kept in that uh, repository. And many of the squash, corn, and sunflower seeds that they have there have ties to native communities. Um, I've always, my research has always focused on indigenous relationships with the landscape and on learning that those seeds were in that repository, I started thinking about the relationship that native communities today have with food, food sovereignty, and the efforts those communities are putting in to revitalize those traditional um, foodways and particularly traditional agriculture and what that means in relation to uh, being connected to the landscape. And I started thinking about those seeds and connecting and uh, uh, connecting with people in communities that have ties to those seeds. And that's what really began the project. We started having conversations about what, what Iowa State could do with the resources that we have as a major ag university mm-hmm. that would be useful to those communities. What do you mean when you say um, food sovereignty or seed sovereignty. Yeah, so so foods seed sovereignty, I would say, is a component of food sovereignty, and a lot of people have talked about food sovereignty, um, and it's a really important movement today, particularly in indigenous communities throughout the world. But uh, it's it's really marked by the goal of uh, being able to grow attain, produce your traditional foods in a way that is culturally appropriate, um, having access to those foods and then being able to eat and produce those foods in a way that's culturally appropriate. And of course, for agricultural peoples, anyone who grew anything, uh, seeds is a really important part of that. And so seed sovereignty, I would say, means not only having access to the seeds that you have always grown, that you have stewarded and that you have cared for, um, for generation upon generation, for for many native, I would say most native communities, it's thousands upon thousands of generations, even thousands of years. Um, These are the seeds that within that nation, they have cared for, stewarded and bred and the idea, it's more than access, it's the idea that those seeds are connected to that community. Mm. And so what happens with those seeds should be determined by that particular Native nation. Well, that that is a perfect seg- segue to rematriation. But before we get to rematriation, I want to ask you, you're talking about food. How has this movement away from traditional indigenous farming practices and foods affected the health of native peoples? Yeah, it's been a very serious struggle for native nations uh, throughout the Americas. And native people in the United States have had to deal with multiple federal policies that have disconnected them from their food systems. So removal from their traditional landscapes, uh, being relegated to smaller and smaller islands of land on reservations, and then having those reservations cut into even smaller islands of land through the Allotment Act, which gave each family 160 acres 
on which to farm, but they brought in uh, quote unquote educators to teach native people how to farm in European uh, styles of farming. And they often, because in Europe, uh, agriculture is a male endeavor. Mm-hmm. So they often separated women who were the growers in many native communities, they separated them from their um, access to land. So they were only able to grow their traditional seeds on these small plots, uh, garden plots, you know, at home. Um, and then they were encouraging uh, native men to grow things like potatoes and onions. And so, uh, and often people didn't have access to their traditional um ways of gaining food so they couldn't hunt in the way that they did in the past or or gather foods in the way they did in the past and so they were dependent on rations um and this is where you see fry bread come into play right people are living on flour and and baking powder and lard and uh i mean in in many ways you know, it shows the strength of the community that they could create something so delicious yeah. <laughs> out of the ingredients. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, of course, it's not good for your health, you know. And so people are living on on minimal and unhealthy food for generations. And then children are taken to boarding school where they're not allowed to learn how to farm in their traditional ways. Um and they're also eating a European diet, a yeah. Euro-American diet. With which they're physically, their their bodies are not able to process the same way because they have been raised on a diet of the three sisters and, and yeah. managed, a, you know, a very healthy lifestyle. And now with the introduction of these Western things, you see the, the rates of diabetes and obesity <laughs> affecting Native Americans so disproportionately high. Yeah, exactly. And so if you're used to really lean meats um, from game and and agricultural products that are really high in protein, you look at corn, beans and squash and the kind of corn that they're growing, it's really high in protein compared to the corn that uh, we all eat now. <laughs> Which is high in sugar. Right? It's very high in sugar and high in starch. And so so they're introduced to this high starch, high sugar, high fat diet. Um, and of course, if you're introduced to that as a four or five year old child, and that's all you eat until you're 18, that forms your palate. Um, yeah. And it's, it's detrimental to health. To your health. Right? So plus what people had access to, plus um, this, you know, being accustomed to this new kind of diet. My guest is Christina Gish-Hill. She is an associate professor of anthropology at Iowa State University and a scholar of indigenous studies. Her article, Returning the Three Sisters, Corn, Beans, and Squash to Native American Farms, Nourishes People, Land, and Culture. So the the, the question of the day, the, the, the word of the day today is rematriation. And I wanted you to explain that to us because I was, when I saw that word, it, it struck me deeply, and I was first shocked that I had never heard it before, and then slowly began to get a little bit angry because I realized that, that it's, it's something that is definitely, I think, a part of our, of our human culture that we've lost, and uh, especially when speaking about indigenous peoples and, and um, 
their philosophies, um, to see it stamped out. I would love to see this word become common again instead of its counterpart. So can you explain to our listeners what is rematriation? Yeah. So the term was actually introduced to me by Rowan White, who uh, is at Sierra Seeds. Sierra Seeds, yeah. 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 And she's an Aquasasne woman who, uh, an indigenous seed keeper who is working very hard herself to rematriate seeds. And uh, I wish I had known it sooner as well, because I, I was using the term repatriation, which implies, and it's commonly used in, in indigenous studies, thinking about um, NAGPRA and bringing items home from museums is, is where my thinking was. But she taught me that rematriation really is the appropriate term, especially when you're thinking about seeds, because seeds are feminine in nature. Um, many Native people refer to their seeds as she, instead of a European way of thinking of seeds as it or as objects. Um, and often, and this isn't true for all communities, but often those seeds are coming home to women who will care and nurture for those seeds. And so often the relationship is thought of as a mother and a child. And you think of the um, plants themselves as sisters. And so the whole system in most native nations is a feminine system. And so talking about rematriation, that's a way to acknowledge the feminine nature of the seeds um, and the feminine nature of the caring, nurturing relationship. And it's also about bringing those seeds home back to the Native nations that originally um, nurtured them, uh, have bred them for generation upon generation into seeds that have a particular specific relationship with that Native nation. Mm -hmm. And often those relationships are connected to um, origin narratives, religious traditions, uh, ways of being that are uh, essential to that Native nation. So it's about the seeds coming home. And uh, a re there's actually Rematriation magazine I found, and they put it simply as returning to the sacred mother which I think is beautiful. And um, on that note, Christina Gishill, I want to thank you for your work and thank you for coming on the air today with us. Her, her article, Returning the Three Sisters, Corn, Beans, and Squash to Native American Farms, Nourishes People, Land, and Culture. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It was an honor. Thanks to Christina for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving your five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.